listening to the Trinity Church Chester Sermon Podcast. Trinity Church Chester is a new church seeking to reach the city with the good news of Jesus Christ. And at the heart of our ministry is our Sunday worship service, in which we hear a sermon preached from a particular part of the Bible. We're glad you're listening. We'd love to see you in person at the Welsh Presbyterian Church Building on St. John Street in the city centre. We meet there every Sunday at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and you can find more details on our website trinitychester.church Come and join us as we seek to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Our scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 1 verses 11 to 23. Let's hear God's word. In Him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory." For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. This is God's words. Uh, Well, here at Trinity, we are picking up uh, where we left off a little while ago with a series of sermons on the beginning of the New Testament letter, which we just read from, called Ephesians. Uh, this is a, a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to people who were living in part of the Roman Empire in a place called Ephesus. Uh, and these people had recently become Christians. That is to say, they had turned their backs on Uh, the gods that they previously worshipped, in order to worship the God of the Bible. And whatever things they previously lived for, they gave up or they put in their proper place in order that God might occupy his rightful place at the centre of their lives. And so when the Apostle Paul writes to these young Christians, there are certain things that he wants them to know. Uh, We didn't read it today. But he spends the beginning of chapter 1 outlining for the Ephesians what an amazing thing it is to be a Christian. Uh, He lists the incredible ways in which God has blessed the Christian. In fact, he says that the Christian has been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. And as he unpacks this, he speaks of how 
The Christian has been adopted by God, has been redeemed, forgiven, given an inheritance. And he outlines how the Christian has been chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, and sealed by the Holy Spirit. These three persons of the Holy Trinity working to secure these great privileges and to give them to us. Paul wants these young Christians to know that to be a Christian is nothing ordinary, something extraordinary. And so he wants them to know about these unseen realities, which are, although they are unseen, nonetheless, realities for them now that they have become Christians. When a person repents of their sin and trusts in Christ, they don't see these things with their eyes. Uh, Their adoption into God's family, their redemption and forgiveness, their inheritance, these aren't things that are before us to see visibly, yet they are real. These are things that God has blessed every Christian with, even though we can't see them. But then in verse 15, Paul outlines what can be seen when it comes to a person becoming a Christian. Uh, He has heard reports, he says, of the Ephesians' faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and their love towards all the saints. Now, this term saints is simply one of the ways Paul refers to all of God's people, to every Christian. And the person who's become a Christian visibly loves others who have faith in the Lord Jesus. Others who also visibly have faith. Uh, These are the two hallmarks of a Christian in Paul's mind. Faith in Christ, the kind that can be reported and heard about by others, and love for those who share that same faith. And because these things were clearly on show in the lives of these people in Ephesus, Paul says in verse 16 that he gives thanks to God for them. Yet he not only give thanks, uh, gives thanks to God for them, but he also prays for more to happen in their lives. In particular, he explains in verse 17, he prays that God would give them greater wisdom and understanding. That he wants the eyes of their hearts to be enlightened, as he puts it in verse 18, so that they might know certain things. And the things that he wants them to know as a matter of priority are outlined in verse 18. First of all, that you may know what is the hope to which God has called you and what are the riches of God's glorious inheritance of the saints. And these young Christians in Ephesus, in turning their backs on the gods of the Roman Empire, in rejecting the things that people in their culture chose to give their lives to, these young Christians in Ephesus had, in some sense, they'd made a big sacrifice. They'd given things up. And there would be no no doubt that times would come when they would wonder whether it was all worth it to be a Christian. And so Paul wants them to know the great hope they have as Christians, even when life seems hopeless. And he wants them to know the great inheritance that they now share in, which is far greater than any material wealth or opportunity that their new faith might cost them. Hope and inheritance. And they're two things that Paul is going to return to later on in the letter. But in verse 19, through to the end of the chapter of our reading, 
Uh, He focuses on one other thing that he wants the Ephesians to know. And it all revolves around God's power. The third thing that Paul prays for these young Christians is that they would know what he describes in verse 19 as the immeasurable greatness of his power towards all who believe. These verses are, are all about God's power. And so I want us to look briefly at three things this afternoon. The extent of God's power, the focus of God's power, and the beneficiaries of God's power. Uh, First of all, then, the extent of God's power. Uh, You can quickly see that these few verses are all about God's power when you just glance down at the kind of words Paul uses in verse 19 to 23. In verse 19, he speaks of the immeasurable greatness of God's power, and the working of his great might. In verse 21, he uses words such as rule, authority, power, dominion. And even the word above is used in reference to authoritative power. In verse 22, we're told that all things are under Christ's feet and that he is head over all things. Terms which, again, speak of authority and power. But before Paul gets into specifics, he emphasises the sheer magnitude of God's power when it comes to its extent. That is to say, Paul wants us to be struck, first of all, by just how powerful God is. We see this in the description of God's power in verse 19, where Paul speaks of the immeasurable greatness of God's power and the working of his great might. He's making a statement about the extent of God's power, about how far reaching God's power is, about how God's power is so far beyond our ability to comprehend. And there is an immeasurable greatness to God's power, which is simply to say that the greatness of God's power cannot be measured. There is no scale on which it can be compared to other powers. There is no unit of measure able to quantify its greatness. It's somewhat fitting, in fact, that our English translations of the Bible struggle to convey the meaning of Paul's words here. It's not, it's not a problem that lies with the translators, but with the English language itself. In this phrase, which we have translated at the end of verse 19, the working of his great might... Paul, in fact, uses three words that all express something of the magnitude of God's power. One Bible scholar and Greek expert translates the phrase, the effectiveness of the strength of his might. And even in that translation, it's as though the English language is just straining under the weight of the task in hand, which is to try and describe the extent of God's power. There is an immeasurable greatness to the extent of God's power. Now, it's worth pausing here because it's almost certainly the case that you and I don't give this point the reflection it deserves in our lives. In our better moments, we might be struck by something of how powerful God is. When things come together in a remarkable way in our lives, we might acknowledge something of the greatness of God's power. But for Paul, this is something that needs to be part of the foundation of our understanding as Christians. 
He's praying that these new Christians would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power as something foundational. Why? Because when we're aware of the magnitude of God's power, everything else that might appear powerful to us is seen in its rightful perspective. It's seen as being subordinate to God's power. To these new Christians living in Ephesus, many things other than God would have appeared powerful. The Roman Empire would have seemed incredibly powerful. Emperors and governors, people in positions of power were opposed to the Christian faith. Almost everybody around these new Christians would have been somewhat hostile to Christians since the first allegiance of a citizen in the Roman Empire was to the empire and its prosperity and Christianity seemed like a threat to that. Uh, The gods that were worshipped in Ephesus and throughout the empire were also held up as being powerful. And the thought might have remained at the back of the minds of these new Christians who had turned their back on those gods. What if we've got it wrong? Not only that, but the temptation to return to the lifestyle that they had turned their backs on That temptation would have appeared powerful too. Ancient Ephesus, by all accounts, was not too dissimilar to the modern day Western world. Uh, The idea of your lifestyle being restricted in any way was not an idea that was celebrated. And so the people whom these new Christians lived among would have had no problem with drunken parties and would have had... Uh, celebrations, they would have celebrated almost any and every expression of sexuality. Uh, people spent their money on satisfying their appetites and sought to live without restraint. And the appeal of that way of living would have felt powerful to Ephesians, uh, Ephesian Christians. And often it's no different for you and I. The culture around us can seem and feel like an incredibly powerful thing. There's hostility towards the teaching of the Bible expressed in the media, in our workplaces, in our schools. Uh, The lifestyles of those around us seem an attractive option at times. The temptation to return to a former way of living often feels like a powerful temptation. And restriction-free attitudes towards life sometimes feel enticing. And what Paul wants these new Christians in Ephesus to know is not fundamentally that these things possess no power, but he wants them to know the immeasurable greatness of God's power. Because when we are aware of the magnitude of God's power, all of these things that can appear powerful to us, they begin to be viewed in their proper place. Governments and cultures that are hostile to the Christian faith possess some power. Uh, They possess the power to make life miserable for Christians and to restrict the freedom of Christians in certain regards, but their power is nothing compared to God's power. Their power is limited and it's measurable. God's power is unlimited and immeasurable. Uh, The appeal of a lifestyle which is free from restraint and regulated by nothing except our own desires, that appeal, it does possess a certain power. 
It can feel enticing. But its power is nothing compared to God's power, which is something we need to know when we're in the moment of being tempted. When it comes to God's power, Paul wants us to know the extent of it, the sheer magnitude of it. And you can see why it's important to know this. But secondly, he also wants us to know what the focus of God's power is. That is to say, he wants us to know where God's power is particularly directed, how God chooses to exercise and utilize his great power. And the answer comes in verse 20, where Paul points out that God worked his great might in Christ. God is not only supremely powerful in a broad and extensive sense, but he focuses his power to work in a particular way, as Paul says, in Christ. And we might say that God possesses this immeasurably great power, yet he chooses to put it to work in Christ. That is not to say that God does not exercise his power in other ways, in sustaining this world he created, in governing and guiding all of the events of history. But it is to say that God has a particular focus for how he exercises his power, and that focus is found in Christ. Well, what exactly does that mean? It means as Paul goes on to say next in verse 20, that God worked, he applied his great power and he put it to work when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Paul is highlighting here what theologians and, and Bible scholars down through the ages have referred to as Christ's exaltation. And we affirmed that We believe this as Christians when we affirm the Apostles' Creed earlier in the service. I believe in Jesus Christ, the Father's only Son, our Lord, who on the third day rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. And we affirm that we believe this because it is something the Bible clearly teaches. The eternal Son of God took on human nature... He became a true human being. He suffered. He was crucified. He died and he was buried and he descended into hell. But his career, his journey did not end there. He rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He is today seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and he will one day return as judge. He's the one who administers perfect justice. These are things that are part of the bare essentials of Christian belief. Christians don't claim to understand exactly how all of this took place, and we don't claim to never have moments of doubt that all of this truly did and will take place. But to be a Christian is to believe that this is what Christ has done. Christ, the Son of God, was humiliated. He humbled himself as he took on our flesh and blood. The eternal Son of God took on a frail and weak human body. 
And in his weakness, he further humbled himself to crucifixion, to death, to the grave, to hell. But what Paul wants us to know in Ephesians 1 is that God put his great power to work in then exalting Christ. He raised him from the dead. He seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. He exalted him. And Paul's main concern here is not to explain to us the importance and the relevance of the resurrection. You'll do that elsewhere. But what he wants us to take note of is that this Christ who has been exalted now possesses at the right hand of God all authority. The God of immeasurable power put his power to work in exalting Christ in raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand and in giving him the right to rule over all things. The powerful God worked powerfully to exalt Christ to the place of power. Which is simply to say the particular focus of God's power is found in Christ. That Christ, therefore, Paul explains in verse 21, is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Uh, He is not so much above all rule and authority and power in the sense that he can do what he likes, uh, as much as that's true, but he is above these things in the sense that he is the supreme ruling authority. All power to rule resides in him. And Christ's name, a name in the sense that it reflects authority, just as the name of the head teacher or the prime minister reflects their headship, Christ's name is now above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Paul goes on to say that in verse 21. So do you get the point? Christ's location is the point. He is above He is not on a par with other ruling authorities. He has no equal, but he is above all. I suppose that there aren't many people who believe in God who would also dispute the idea that God is powerful. It's bound up, isn't it, with the very idea of God. If God exists, he must be powerful. I expect we'd all agree. But when we start to ask the question, so what does God do with his power? We might start to see then a range of different ideas. This is where it becomes clear that it is not the case that all religions worship the same God. Because what is made clear in the Bible is that Jesus Christ is not one man among equals in the history of religious teachers. But he is the supreme authority over all things. He possesses the name above all other names, the very name which belongs to God alone. Muslims might acknowledge Jesus to be a prophet and a teacher, but because they do not recognise him to be the one whom God has seated at his right hand, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, they do not worship the God of the Bible. In a similar way, perhaps more personally, There are many people who profess to be Christians, but who do not accept the authority that Christ has been given to rule over all things, including our lives. To be a Christian 
is not merely to accept Jesus as an example for how to live, or even to accept Jesus only as the sacrifice for your sins, without at the same time accepting his authority over our lives from here on in. He is both the one who was crucified, died and was buried, and the one who has been exalted to the right hand of the Father and given the position of supreme rule over all things. When you think of the greatness of God's power, do you recognise that he has chosen to put his power to work in Christ? Christ is the focus of God's power. That's the extent of God's power and the focus of God's power. Thirdly, finally, and briefly then, Paul outlines for us who will benefit from God's power. Who is going to benefit from God's power being utilised in this way? In verse 22, Paul says that God has put all things under Christ's feet and appointed him as head over all things. Two more images of Christ's supreme authority. Everything is subject, is subject to him. It's all under his feet. And he is the head of all things. But for what purpose? What is the end goal of Christ's rule? And the answer is, it is all for the sake of his people. At the end of verse 22, Paul not only says that God gave Christ as the head over all things but that he gave Christ as head over all things to the church. And when he refers to the church here, he's referring to God's people. He's making the same point he made in verse 19 when he wrote that he wants us to know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Now just try and let that sink in for a moment. What does God view as the supreme purpose of his immeasurable power? The purpose is directed towards us who believe, towards us Christians. Why was Christ the one who is the focus and the application of God's power? Why was he raised from the dead and appointed as head over all things? It was for the church, for us. There are three words that are so vitally important in the Christian life. We hear them repeated each time we come to the Lord's Supper. They're the words, given for you. Christ's body, when we come to the supper, given for you. Christ's blood, given for you. Christ himself, given for you. Why was Christ conceived and born for you? Why did Christ suffer? Why was he crucified? Why did he die and why was he buried? Why did he descend into hell? For you. Yet equally, why did he rise from the dead? Why did he ascend to heaven? Why is he seated at the Father's right hand? Why will he one day return to judge for you? 
when when our children were baptized on each occasion uh, they were each addressed with these words at their baptism they're printed actually on, on page one of our order of worship today they're addressed with these words for you little child jesus christ has come he has fought he has suffered For you he entered the shadow of Gethsemane and the horror of Calvary. For you he uttered the cry, it is finished. For you he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And there he intercedes for you, little child, even though you do not know it. But in this way, the word of the gospel becomes true. We love him because he first loved us. They both addressed our children with those words at their baptism. And it is, I think, my greatest desire as their father, even, even though it's a desire that I feel imperfectly and inconsistently, it is nonetheless my greatest desire that they grow and grow in their appreciation of the reality spoken of in these words. My daughter, my son, Jesus Christ given for you and I think that's the heart of the Apostle Paul behind his words here in Ephesians 1 here is what I so desperately want you to know dear Christian Jesus Christ he is given for you He lives and reigns over all things for you. Because if we begin to grasp that, we begin to recognise that no other power can ultimately harm us. The divine supreme power rests in him. He governs all things for your sake, for the sake of the church. And when we begin to grasp it, we realise that the only right response is what Paul outlines elsewhere in Galatians 2 verse 20. This life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Life now is characterised by one chief priority. Faith in the Son of God who loved us and who gave himself for us. And we must not hold any part of our lives back from him because he has been given authority over all things. Authority which, wonderfully, he holds for our sake. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you that you have done all these things that we have been thinking about in the Lord Jesus Christ for us. We thank you that you have exercised your great power in Christ for our sake. And we ask that you would help us respond rightly in lives of faith and loving obedience. In Jesus' name. Amen. Listening to the Trinity Church Chester Sermon Podcast. We 
hope that this message is a blessing to you. If you'd like to know more about the Christian faith and what it means to live as a Christian, please do get in touch. You can email hello at trinitychester.church or head to the Connect page on our website, trinitychester.church forward slash connect. We'd love to hear from you soon.